Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites here on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today we're listening to some of the highlights of the discussion I'm moderating at the Maryland, Delaware, and D.C. chapter of the Association of Nutrition and Food Service Professionals annual Workshop by the Sea, taking place in Ocean City, Maryland. We were discussing conventional and industrial models of agriculture versus organic and various non-industrial methods of agriculture in the context of institutional buying and had a ranging discussion about the benefits, challenges, and future of both models. Certified dietary managers of dining services at nursing homes, assisted living facilities, hospitals, and other healthcare facilities were in the audience. Speaking on the panel were Theo Braver, certified organic farmer at Cottingham Farm, also a lawyer and founder of the Eastern Shore Food Hub. Joe Forsthofer is Corporate Communications Director for Purdue. Karen Jenkins is Administrator at the Genesis Hammonds Lane Center in Baltimore. Louise Mitchell, who's a physical therapist and nurse, is Sustainable Foods Program Manager at the Maryland Hospitals for a Healthy Environment and Regional Organizer for Healthy Food in Healthcare and Healthcare Without Harm. And Charles Wright is a conventional farmer and owner of Wright's Market in Wicomico County. Here's that conversation. We've had several of the hospitals and nursing homes that have worked with us on increasing their healthy food options and more local and sustainable food options at their facilities. Um, they've presented here at your conference in the past. Louise Mitchell, Maryland Hospitals for Healthy Environment, Sustainable Foods Program Manager. The feedback that the conference organizers received was that you wanted to hear more on uh, kind of from each perspective together. What, what are the uh, issues related to conventional production? What are the issues related to sustainable production? And how can we move forward on, on these, on these uh, issues? And I don't know what the combined number is for your organizations together in terms of your food purchasing power. I do know from projects we've done together, I've done before, that the combined purchasing power of our Baltimore public, our Maryland public school systems, is between seven and $800 million a year, which is a huge number. Uh, and buying food and how that can affect the marketplace. I'm curious, Karen, let's go to you next. I'm just curious, just your analysis of how it's changing, what the challenges are, because some institutions are trying to make a shift to a different way of buying and buying different kinds of food, but it's a complex question. By the way, I wanted to say I have great respect for dietary managers everywhere. Karen Jenkins, administrator at Genesis Hammonds Lane Center. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Having worked with many. But I think the challenge is we have many masters in healthcare. We have regulatory masters. We have the patients themselves and the families. You have your administrators and the, the financial master. And I think we have to try to make sense of all of that somehow. And typically, what big, especially larger healthcare companies do, is formulize in order to try to make it all work with all of those people. So you get this much space to work with in terms of being creative or going outside of those formularies. So I think, in theory, what we need to do is get everybody on the same page with where we're going, with what our intentions are, with who we're serving. And I think we can do that with either buying local, which is what I'm kind of taking baby steps towards, buying just trying to buy local, because I am able to do that, even in the tight formularies that I come across. And you guys know what I'm talking about, right? With formularies and plugging in, and it is, we're not as free as we might like to be. When I want to buy chicken, that I am presented with this list of chickens or types of chicken or that I'm allowed to buy. And I don't get a lot of leeway 
on choosing. And so what you have to sort of do to participate in a local or sustainable effort in the context of that is appeal to somebody (laughs) in the higher up to get a choice about where to spend your dietary dollars or get some of those other items onto your formulary. Now, we've been successful doing that with produce. Some of our produce distributors buy a lot of local, at least with local items. Meats and poultries, um, not so much. That seems to be more of a sticking point. I mean, do you all in the farming world feel that at all, what goes on here in the institutional world? We don't sell directly to institutions like the hospital. Charles Wright, conventional farmer. But we sell direct to restaurants like sweet corn, those type of things. And that can be done pretty easily. But are people like in your world and Purdue's world, right, that deal with places like Cisco where the food goes to right. to be sold? You don't do that directly. Someone else does that. We don't sell to Cisco. Like our watermelon, we grow watermelons for another farmer who's a broker. And those watermelons go directly from him to chain stores. They might go to Whole Foods, Wegmans, and on up the northeast. I mean, there's 5,000 acres grown on Delmarva, so you got to have a, a mass way in the market from when we, like, I know watermelons because that's my main, one of my favorite crops. The market is the northeast, so the people in New York, Connecticut, Boston, there's only like four to five acres, I think, grown in the, from New Hampshire in that area. Connecticut, it's just too cold up there. So we have to get that product from here to there. The majority have to go through their food safety regulations, Then, because some stores won't even take it if you've not been certified. Each product has to be on that list. So I'm just trying to get the chain here. And most of you all know the chain. People listening on the radio don't know the chain, so I'm just trying to put the chain in perspective. With poultry, the vast majority of commercially available poultry is raised under contract. Joe Forsthofer, Purdue Corporate Communications Director. So someone like Mr. Wright will sign a contract with a poultry company to raise the chickens according to that company's specifications. And then the company does the processing and the distribution. And then at that layer, you know, usually you you end up getting the customers to their distribution centers down to the store or directly through food service distributors to institutions. But we have also started, especially out on the West Coast, we have... You don't mind me backing up for just a second. Purdue has, most people are probably familiar with the Purdue brand, which is a conventionally raised chicken, except for the fact that 12 years ago we started taking out antibiotics. We've now reached the stage where we've taken out all the human antibiotics except when they're medically needed to treat or prevent the spread of a disease in an individual chicken house. So 95% of our chickens never receive any human antibiotics. They do receive a thing called an ionophore, which is classified as an antibiotic but has no use in human medicine, so you don't have that concern of potential antibiotic resistance. So we have the Purdue brand. We have Harvest Land, which we started about 2007 as a no antibiotics ever brand. We have Organic under Coleman and Harvest Land. And then we have some West Coast local brands, and we're looking to see, you know, that's, that's a model that I think we'll see grow elsewhere. And it's interesting, Mark, you mentioned consumer buying power. You know, when we started moving away from antibiotics 12 years ago, it was because we started to sense that consumers were asking questions. And if you can't legitimately answer their questions, you need to question why you're doing what you're doing. And antibiotics was a perfect case of that. It was basically we understood the consumers understood the use of antibiotics. 
but they don't, and if a kid is sick, you're going to take your kid to the doctor, and if an antibiotic is appropriate, you're going to administer it, but you don't put it on their cereal every morning. So we, we started to, to change that way. So there is a lot of impact that buying groups have, and, I, and if you want to see you know, change taking place, you're, you're in the driver's seat. The, the consumers and the customers, really, if you look at you know, who's, who's shaping the future, it's not so much the government regulation, or else, it's consumers, customers, and communities. They're the ones who are determining what they want companies to do, what practices they're comfortable with, how they want their food produced. That's something very powerful. I think you're finding more and more companies are, are starting to, to listen to that voice. Real direct questions here, but let me go to Cleo next. And, and your perspective on this. I mean, when most of the food, at least that I can discern, that comes from organic or sustainable smaller farming operations, some larger ones, are either sold at food markets or to restaurants. But very little, from what I understand, and I could be wrong, and you'll correct me, is institutional. Smaller, more sustainable postage stamp size operations of organic producers. No, we have not traditionally been in the institutions such as the hospitals and the nursing homes and the prisons and the, and the public schools. Cleo Braver, certified organic farmer. It's hard because in order to produce sustainably in a diverse way, you're pr- producing on a fairly small scale. And so really what has to happen is, I'm jumping to the, end, to the end, to the conclusions, is some infrastructure and model to sort of aggregate the sustainably produced small producers' output so that they can go together on one truck to the larger uh, institutional buyers so that the institutional buyers, in effect, have a choice between... Um, buying food that comes out of an industrial production system or buying food that comes out of a more sustainably produced system. And just some examples of, you know, what do you mean by sustainably produced? For me, it's having chosen to produce food organically. So I don't want to use pesticides on on our food. There are certain, you know, natural biological elements that we use. Um, There are a few synthetics that are permitted. But the vast majority of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides that are, you know, if you look at the mid-Atlantic vegetable production recommendations from all the, you know, universities and that sort of thing, you know, we we don't use those. We just there's very few on that list that we that 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 we can can use because I believe the science that tells me that there's an impact of spraying those pesticides. Whether it's an impact on the pollinators, which not only organic farmers but humanity relies on to pollinate our food. It's not just me as an organic farmer that needs those pollinators. Um, it affects the the, the soil. Uh, there's residues in in certain of the of the crops. There's there's implications of using pesticides. It's an easy fix to to handle a pest problem, but there's some implications from it. We find that with one notable exception of stink bugs, which actually was better this year, we've been able to control every pest on our farm by learning over the last seven years that I've been a farmer. I'm a pretty new, I'm a first-generation farmer, they call us. You know, learning, yeah, the first year, my, or the third year, my tomatoes were you know, really hit by aphids. And so I learned about bringing in aphidious colmonii into the greenhouse to eat up my green peach aphids. And I learned about um, bringing in a beneficial wasp to, to um, parasitize the huge giant tomato hornworms, those bright green tomato hornworms that were weaving their way through my tomatoes. You know, over time, you, you, you learn how to beneficially use insects, import predators, um, bring in pollinator strips, create the habitat that you need for beneficial. So I don't want to impose any society costs through my production methods, either on the soil or the water 
that everything runs off to, the, whether it's the, nutri- the nutrients or the sediment or the water itself. And I don't want to impact public health either. It's going to probably re- require an, an aggregation of, these, of multiple producers on that small, sustainable basis in order to drive those, tr- those crops to institutional buyers, such as the, the institutions that you all represent. We do have two hospitals in Maryland that are purchasing and serving uh, certified organic food, produce. Louise Mitchell, Maryland Hospitals for Healthy Environment, Sustainable Foods Program Manager. And the way that they do it is on a small scale. So the way that institutions can take steps is to start with one product line. You could look at the Environmental Working Group's list of foods that have high pesticide residues. This year, apples are at the top of the list. Last year and other years, it's been strawberries or peaches or celery. You can use, and this list is updated every year on the Environmental Working Group's uh, website, ewg.org. You can use that as a way to make decisions about how to take a step forward. And maybe you can't serve everything organic, but you could serve apples certified organic. Now, there's only one farmer on the eastern shore, on the eastern U.S., excuse me, that I know of that certified organic apples because there are concerns about humidity issues and other things that they feel that they have. A lot of the orchards have trouble producing fruit, for example, that's certified organic. But this farmer has had family members in his, uh, family members with cancer, decided he was absolutely going to go completely organic and stop using pesticides. The only orchard so far that I know of producing uh, fruit, apples, and other uh, orchard fruit without pesticides. So you could take that step and promote that, educate your your, uh, family members, your even your residents or patients, or if you're in the hospital, even your employees, even at the nursing homes. I know some of you do serve food to your employees. So you can take that step, educate them, put out the information about the Environmental Working Group, and then show them that you're serving certified organic apples. You could even raise the price a little bit if people are willing to pay it. Part of this kind of begs the question, and let's just throw the question out there. Is there a problem? And is there a problem that has to be solved? Or is the way we do things now okay and sustainable and the way they need to be done for the future? I mean, there are two systems in this country. There's buying power in this country, but there's also reality we have to deal with. Your reality out there and the reality of the people up in these tables. So what are you going to say, Joe? Actually, I think part of this is it, I don't think it is an either-or question right now. Joe Forsthofer, Purdue Corporate Communications Director. I think whether you're looking at certified organic, small-scale organic, or conventional, all three have have room to grow. All three have have ways to improve their productivity and to lower their impact. I get nervous when you say that, and I understand how the term sustainable is being used locally, but that term gets used so broadly, and I think sometimes we think that it's, it's an end state that certain models have reached rather than something that the entire food system and everything else needs to work for. For me, I, I like to think of the triple bottom line corporate sustainability definition where it, you know you measure your impact on people, on planet, and profitability with profitability not being a bad word. That's part of sustainability. If you don't generate some profit, you don't stay in business. Um, and that also implies a role for market and consumer choice. The UN has a definition the uh, UN and World Bank, if you sort of meld their definitions, it's that sustainability is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the future. Sounds pretty. Now, the problem is when you really can't, anytime you're meeting the needs of the present, you're having an impact on the future. So, again, it's, you know, what, what actually 
reaches the gold standard of sustainability. So within Purdue, we use a phrase that we believe in responsible food and agriculture. And we like using that that term because responsibility, that we can say we can be strive for being as responsible as possible within each of the production methods. So I don't think it's necessarily a question of it only has to be small scale or it's it's not good enough for me or it has to be production agriculture because that's the only thing that can meet the needs you can really start to look at you know what what are the individual practices in the companies that you're you're working with that show that they're trying to be responsible within each of those business models and what is the willingness to change those business models or to adapt new business models to respond to customer and consumer concern rather than just saying, you know, this is how we're going to produce food and if you don't like it, go hungry. I think Charles could talk to some of the tremendous amount of changes that have taken place in, quote, conventional agriculture to be more responsible in terms of of their everyday practices. Karen Jenkins, Administrator at Genesis Hammonds Lane Center. I think one of the things that we're talking about here isn't necessarily just production. I think it's about distribution to people like us because something like a a restaurant has an opportunity to change their prices when this or that is in season and they want to feature a dish and they serve, you know, whatever it is and they have this special. Well, we can't do that. We're serving people within the confines of a food cost that we have to meet every single day and over time. So I think the thing that, that in, in terms of what I'm trying to do, buying local is more approachable to me because I can get to that via the distribution systems that are already available to me. And I think that that's a small part that we can play in reducing all the other pieces that we're talking about in terms of distribution not necessarily just production, like instead of buying from Mexico or California or South America, I would be thrilled to buy from the Eastern Shore. It's about distribution and and accessibility for me. And does local mean to you Maryland? Does local mean to you Pennsylvania, Delaware, Virginia, New Jersey? Yeah, I think think Delmarva, Pennsylvania. I'm in Baltimore, so we do do business. In fact, I do business with a farmer in Pennsylvania, an orchardist in Pennsylvania. So the question is, I guess, one of the things that came out a little earlier when you were talking about pesticides and antibiotics, as you were raising from Purdue's perspective, is that a problem when we're selling to institutions, healthcare institutions, when we're feeding people in nursing homes or in hospitals, or are they making too much of this when it comes to those issues? Because we all have to eat, we all have to buy our food, and I think this is part of the question. I mean, why are we arguing about changing anything? I mean, is there a reason to argue about changing, or are we just kind of kind of playing this game, well, this is dangerous, this is not dangerous? You know, the big picture is, I mean, I think probably a lot of folks in this room agree with, subscribe to, or even invented the notion that we all need to put more vegetables on our plate. Cleo Braver, Certified Organic Farmer. Um, to be to be healthy as Americans, and uh, we've reached the point, and I don't think this is really well known, that um, less than three percent of this country's cropland is devoted to vegetable production. I thought I'd hear a gasp at that. Less than two and a half percent of Maryland cropland is devoted to vegetable production. So little of our cropland is devoted to vegetable production that the United States Department of Agriculture, which is looking out after us when it comes to food, calls it a specialty crop. 
So it took me a long time as a vegetable grower to realize that that specialty, that little very small, I might add, specialty crop block grant program that was available for growers applied to me because I thought, I'm not growing specialties, I'm growing vegetables. So I think that's a big picture item that you guys should know and be really super concerned about because it's, 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 it's hard to get to the point where we are healthy and self-supporting if we're not even growing our own food anymore. So the Eastern Shore used to have 600 vegetable processing plants. It used to have the largest tomato processing plant in the world. It now has none. And instead, we import over 90 or 95 percent of our tomatoes from Canada and Mexico. I think that's a problem. I think it's a self-sufficiency problem. I think it's a problem when American communities no longer grow their own food, notwithstanding notable exceptions like Mr. Wright. You know, there's, there's, I'm not saying there's not growers. Of course there are. But the, you got to look at what the, the big, big picture statistics are. The big picture is that the vast majority of American farmland, including what they used to call the Midwest Prairie, which no longer exists, is turned over to corn. It's feed corn and it's feed soy. You know, we're not really, one could make the argument that a lot of what comes off of those fields is not really food. It's food additives. It's food-like substances. And I I printed off this morning because I was amused by it, a list of about 90 corn-based additives that have been approved by the FDA. That's what a lot of the corn is going to. Yes, it's going to feed our CAFO, that means confined animal feed operations, poultry, but it's also going to create these these really invented additives that are anti, that are leavening agents and anti-caking agents and emulsifying agents and Go to the FDA um, website one day and look at the, the uh, description of the additives. It's really quite amusing. We're not really growing a lot of food on American farmland. We're not growing nearly as much as we can be. In my vision, we're growing fruits and vegetables. Some may be conventional. Some may be you know, biodynamic. Some may be organic. Um, but we're growing fruits and vegetables, and we're eating a lot less meat, and we're freeing up the land to be producing real food and to be um, surrounded by these, you know, really environmentally important things like buffer strips. Right now, our land use is so intensive. We farm right up to the roadsides, right up to the drainage ditches, and those ditches are just designed to carry the nutrients and the sediment and the water right into the Chesapeake Bay, which is why we have dead zones. Charles Wright, conventional farmer. This reminds me of a class I was in when I was in college. (laughs) I was the only farmer in there. We have buffers almost. We have buffers on every one of our fields, minimum is 12 foot, that's no government money. The word sustainable, everybody might as well know. They asked me to speak on this panel. Anybody knows me, I know I speak my mind. The <laughs> word sustainable, in my personal opinion, that's been used, is twisted around. Now, if you read my profile, there's land still in my family from 1675, granted from King Charles. That's pretty sustainable. We're still farming. <laughs> we didn't sell it for houses. We're not in the real estate business. We're in the farming business. We grow corn, soybeans. We've been organic. My great-grandfather didn't have pesticides. We've evolved because less people farm. We've become efficient because less people farm. People want quality product at an economical price. And if I can get two tomatoes for 10 cents or I can get two tomatoes for $2 and they're both the same, produced the same way, they're going to buy the ones for two cents, and especially in your guys' position, institutional buying. You have you have a you need to know your costs. It's the same thing with our operation. 
We use pesticides, herbicides. I don't use them because I want to. They all cost money. All our crops are scouted. All our vegetables are scouted. We use IPM, integrated pest management. We don't brawl blanket. We do use fungicides on a schedule because when you've got $2,000 an acre invested in a watermelon crop, you're trying to do all you can to make sure you've got a profit at the end. And this is one of those years there isn't one on that crop. Usually they're the, the ones that kind of bring you out. To give you an idea, my grandfather's farming didn't have hybrid corn, 20, 30 bushels to the acre. I've got a guy in the field right home right now combining. Our corn is doing 300 bushels per acre. Same piece of grind. We're getting more off a little piece. And, and since I've started farming, the organic matter in the soil has increased, from, and we're on some sandy grind from about below 1% to about 3 and That doesn't sound like much, but if you're on the sandy grind we are in Wacomico County, that's quite a bit. And that's from no-till farming, which pretty much eliminates runoff, erosion. Those things are good for the environment. My family eats my food. So it, to me, I'm not doing anything that's against the law. For one chemical to come out, it's a minimum of 10 years research and approval from the government to get that out. And there's less and less coming for vegetables. Our industry, it is small, but there's less and less because it's, it's a small part. It's a high value, but it's a small part. But a lot of things are grown cheaper in other countries, and that's why the tomato industry, those type of things left. I wish they were still here. The strawberry industry used to be huge where we are. But it, economics is the main carrier. Louise Mitchell, Maryland Hospitals for Healthy Environment, Sustainable Foods Program Manager. Mark, you had asked a question of do we need to change uh, the way we're doing it. And one thing that we haven't taken into account in this conversation yet is the costs of the current model that's the majority of the way our food's produced in a more conventional industrialized format. And so th there are many costs and we're not always realizing the costs when we're going to the grocery store and paying for food as an individual for our families or when you're buying food through for your institution through your distributor. If you look at the just the cost at the distributor, that's one price. And yes, the industrialized model keeps that price low. But there are so many other impacts that are not being accounted for in that cost that you're paying when you pay, when you pay for your food. So first of all, our tax dollars that we're all paying are going towards supporting this industrialized model. And so there's a lot of support for that model. Um, there have been many subsidies from our tax dollars paid towards corn and soy producers. Um, and then uh, there's now a recent shift towards funneling that money towards more crop insurance than corn and soy subsidies. And then there are other benefits that kind of conventional model, maybe not as much in the vegetables, um, as much in the, the uh, animal uh, production practices with the corn and soy and um, other practices that are funded for conventional producers. So that's one cost that you're not seeing at the grocery store when you pay your bill to, to buy food that you've already paid for, actually, or we have. And then the second cost is the impacts on our health that we're paying for that we're not incorporating into the cost of the food either. And those you don't see right away, obviously, and it's hard to tease them out. But with a lot of the studies that have been shown, these health impacts of the use of pesticides, the use of antibiotics, the use of arsenic in the poultry feed and, the, and pork, uh, pork production, and the runoff from manure into the waterways, those are all things that impact our health. It's, it's, it, it runs into the environment. It's in our food. It's in our water. It's in 
parts of the environment. But the real reason that we're encouraging, especially healthcare institutions, if you look at all the sectors of industry that purchase food, schools, universities, businesses, healthcare really should be leading the way in making these changes and incorporating these kinds of impacts into their thinking and purchasing decisions. You're listening to a discussion I moderated at the Maryland, Delaware, and D.C. chapter of the Association of Nutrition and Food Service Professionals annual workshop by the sea in Ocean City, Maryland. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this very short break. I'm Mark Steiner, and welcome back. Today we're listening to some of the highlights of a discussion I moderated at the Maryland, Delaware, and D.C. chapter of the Association of Nutrition and Food Service Professionals annual Workshop by the Sea, taking place in Ocean City, Maryland. We are discussing conventional and industrial models of agriculture versus organic and certain non-industrial models of agriculture in the context of institutional buying and are talking about the benefits, challenges, and future of both models. Just a reminder about our guest this hour. You heard the voices of certified organic farmer Cleo Braver, Purdue Corporate Communications Director Joe Forsthofer, Genesis Hammonds Lane Center Administrator Karen Jenkins, Maryland Hospitals for a Healthy Environment Sustainable Foods Program Manager Louise Mitchell, and conventional farmer Charles Wright. You're also hearing questions posed by the audience made up of certified dietary managers at dining services at nursing homes, assisted living facilities, hospitals, and other healthcare facilities in Maryland, Delaware, and Washington. And here's the rest of that conversation. Joe, you had talked about the um, consumers driving change, and I agree. Louise Mitchell, Maryland Hospitals for Healthy Environment, Sustainable Foods Program Manager. I think that's one of the reasons that we're doing our work is because it's been challenging to change policy. So the impact that you have on making change is significant, and you're listening, you're paying attention. So when you change your purchasing practices, the market changes. But this other level of policy is a really is another very important piece that is driving a lot of the way our food system has been designed to date and how it changed from when Charles's great grandfather produced food to now. And so shifting the way our policies are is another very, very important piece and powerful lever that we can use and that healthcare providers ideally could be chiming in on that would really support change in addition to your changing your purchasing practices. One quick thought on this. Joe Forsthofer, Purdue Corporate Communications Director. I think, again, when we start to say, look at an either-or position, we tend to vilify the other somehow. You're organic. You can't feed the world. You're conventional. You're poisoning the world. The answer is really going to come somewhere out of the two of those because practices are evolving. Organic is becoming more efficient. Our organic chickens when you take out the extremely high cost of organic feed, the performance is very similar with conventional. So you're going you're to see that come together. So I would encourage not, not to vilify either or to put either as, as the full answer because both practices have the ability to learn from each other. And really what I think we need to get to when we talk about change is what is that ultimate system that's going to meet our needs with the least impact on the future, rather than creating an either-or situation where we may miss out on some opportunities. I'm Wayne Coon. I just had a question, not so much a question, just a statement uh, out of all this co- uh, communication, but 
about the antibiotics, that was a concern long ago, but I also learned that, I think from one of the panel members, that they're not using the, uh, all the antibiotics, the derivatives of that in the chicken feed and other things. But I do believe that was a problem at one time and could still be a problem, especially in the beef industry. I grew up in the 60s, so I don't know what was going on back then. We didn't have labeling, I guess, uh, so much, but um, we seemed to be able to do pretty good. Um, you didn't have all-you-can-eat buffets, so the food production, you know, we, we've changed. We, uh, we have fast foods and all-you-can-eat buffets. Uh, everything has come out there, so uh, the level of food production needed today is, is far greater than it was, say, 50, 40 years ago, and that has probably impacted the production and how fast we produce the food, and, and some of the antibiotics was a way of, I guess, increasing the uh, ability to uh, fatten up the, uh, the cattle. This is really, let's, let, let's wrestle with this for a minute. Uh, this whole question of antibiotics and, and farming, the animals we grow to consume as food. There's that whole Reuters article that came out that causes huge uproar that's on our website and other websites and we talked about on the air um, about use of antibiotics. And Purdue came out with their own statement saying about how they stopped using human antibiotics in, in their feed. And that was a piece of it. But is the question of antibiotics and using antibiotics, A, an important issue to wrestle with when you're talking about raising animals or not? And B, can you grow the animals without it? And is it hurting us? Does it hurt us to eat that meat or not? I would say yes to all three of those questions. Number one, is it an issue? Yes, it is. Uh, Number two, can you raise them without it? Yes, you can. I'm raising chickens and swine without antibiotics. Cleo Braver, certified organic farmer. They're living in healthy living conditions. They don't need antibiotics to survive the adverse living conditions that they're in in CAFO operations. I have no illnesses in any of my animals, never have. Yet it's important because, um, and, and frankly, with respect to the reduced use, I'm surprised to hear that given the, I think the New York Times just reported on the 2nd, October 2nd, this, um, the, the FDA, FDA's own findings about how much um, antibiotic use has increased just between 2009 and 2012. So that's fairly recent history, and they're finding that medically important, the use of medically important antibiotics, i.e. ones that they give us, well, you know that, I'm talking to healthcare providers here, um, medically important antibiotics increased in farm animals, increased from 2009 to 12 by 16%, and they They identified one specific one, which you all know more about than I do, cephalosporins, which increased by 37%. So, yes, there's still an ongoing problem with increases in the use of antibiotics. What's more disturbing still, which I didn't even really focus on, that it's it's not only for the purported purpose of preventing disease in animals, it's also for the stated, explicitly stated purpose of fattening up animals. So you knew more more than I did about that one. And so, well, you've got a lot of producers or integrators who are saying, you know, we don't use those for those purposes. There's a great article called Documents Reveal How Poultry Firms Systematically Feed Antibiotics to Flocks. Someone got access to their feed tickets. So a lot of the antibiotics are fed through water, but the vast majority are fed through their feed. And apparently the feed tickets of a lot of poultry producers were somehow reviewed. And I haven't had a chance to look at it in detail, but that it does appear that there still seems to be use of antibiotics for the purpose of fattening animals. That would be disturbing. I can't speak for the industry. Joe Forsthofer, Purdue Corporate Communications Director. Um, and practices and approaches are varied. But we have human antibiotics. We've tracked that. We have gotten it down, as I said, to less than 5% of our flocks. 
So you can grow animals in what would be typically cons considered a CAFO without relying on antibiotics. Approximately 20-some percent or more of our chickens are raised, no antibiotics ever. The others, again, the only difference there is the use of the ionophore, which, which treats a common intestinal illness. Now, yes, that intestinal illness can spread and be a bigger problem the more animals you have. That's the same with any, any population. You're going to have more sick kids in a bigger school than you do in a smaller school. You can do it, but it takes a lot of work. It took us 12 years to get to this point. You have to develop the protocols from hatchery, breeders, all along the way. You put a lot more money into probiotics. You do more vaccinations. Um, you put a lot more attention on all the aspects of animal husbandry. You make adjustments in density if you need to. So it can be done, but I would caution, and I don't think anybody's really saying zero antibiotics, never ever, because no matter what production model you w use, there is a risk that at some point an animal will get sick just as a person can no matter how carefully you raise your kids sometimes they come home with a you know sometimes they get sick so you don't want to eliminate the possible use of that for humane responsible treatment but i do think given all the science out there you know that was part of our decision given all the science out there it's hard to justify saying we are going to continue to use antibiotics for the purpose of increased production or as a substitute for, for responsible animal no, husbandry. Julia will have to admit that there are many companies other than Purdue that don't take that position. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm a CAFO also. Charles Wright, conventional farmer. I grow personally 40,000 bro uh, Purdue oven stuffers for Purdue. My brother's got about 165, so about 200,000 chickens per flock. That equals that about a million a year. You guys like the air condition? We're all inside, aren't we? Chickens like it cool too. They like a controlled environment. Everything is the chickens and everything is no different from me. We grow them. Purdue brings the feed. I've been growing chickens for about 20 years, and I'm the one that runs anything through the water. The only thing going through the water, unless it's a vaccine, when they're about 17 days old, is water. Never in 20 years did we run been asked to run or run anything through the water for growth or any other thing besides water. The CAFO, that's called, that's from the Department of Environment and Agriculture Concentrated Feeding that, uh, Operation, that's called a chicken house. We tend the birds, we take care of them. Purdue is the leading company. We've been with them all but three years that we've grown chickens. They've got all your humane welfare standards. Anything you do, take care of your a normal person would do. They've got listed out, um, and we've done well growing chickens. It's industrial model, but it's feeding the masses. And I have no problem, you know, if you want, I sell free-range eggs at the market because it's a niche. If you want to buy eggs from me from $5 a dozen, I'll gladly sell them to you. You know, it's a niche market. It's not everybody, and I don't think everybody should have to pay $5 for a dozen eggs. But if that's what you choose, I can sell, I can sell them because I buy them from somebody that, that grows free-range birds. And he also grows free-range chickens. But I'm not going to pay him $20 for a four-pound bird. When I can get an oven stuffer that's eight and a half pounds, which they've gone up now because chicken's getting high. 
for about 14 because my wife was complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Louise Mitchell, Maryland Hospitals for Healthy Environment, Sustainable Foods Program Manager. With the issue of antibiotic resistance, uh, Mark, you were asking if it's a problem. Obviously, uh, especially those of you working in, in nursing homes and in hospitals, um, we know about the significant problem of antibiotic-resistant infections. And we are taking steps. Doctors are prescribing antibiotics much more conservatively. Nursing homes and hospitals now have policies to be more cautious and conservative about prescribing antibiotics. But the one step we haven't taken is addressing the routine use of antibiotics in animal agriculture. And estimates are somewhere between 70 to 80% of use in the country of all the antibiotics used for human medicine, for soaps and, um, soaps and detergents, for the therapeutic use when animals get sick, absolutely, they should have antibiotics and have access to effective antibiotics. And the same with humans. The problem is we all know that antibiotics are, we're losing our effectiveness of antibiotics in treating human infections. This is a huge problem. Obviously, not only does it cost a lot more, but it's causing a lot of human suffering and people dying and, and obviously lots of complications, as we know. That's the problem. And so we're not... And, and if you look again at all the industry sectors, healthcare, of all the sectors, this should be the top priority to change your purchasing practices, to drive change in the market, because Purdue, has, we give them a lot of credit for making these changes and taking these steps to change all their management of the, the way that they're raising their flocks so that they could raise animals without the routine use of antibiotics and be more um, conservative in their use of them. So the next step we need to take is is engage your producers, your suppliers of meat, poultry, pork in, in not using the antibiotics routinely. And then again, support the policies because we've had a lot of trouble making changes on the federal level in passing a policy to prevent uh, the routine use of this. So that's really the issue that we need to be addressing. And then secondly, if you look at mass production of food, obviously we all need to have access to food. So that's certainly very important. As, as Joe was pointing out, the concept of you know, all of us moving forward and making change, increasing effectiveness of uh, organic or sustainable production and uh, production of the conventional practices, the more we can move in that direction towards reducing the routine use, the, the better, the more you'll have access to them for yourself. So um, in your institution. So if it was a widespread policy nationwide, you would automatically have access to that. You wouldn't have to make a choice about which, which product you would purchase. Cleo Braver, certified organic farmer. Charles, my chickens may not have air conditioning, but they get to run around outside and eat grass and get eaten by hawks. <laughs> <laughs> we do have organic production as well. In fact, we just, uh, just moved our first uh, organic house in Delaware. And actually organic production, I think they all have a lot going for them. I mean, they're, they're different models. It's, again, how responsible you're within them. But I would add one thing. If you are required to buy the lowest cost chicken, it's not going to be the Purdue with the minimal use of antibiotics. It's not going to be our no antibiotics ever. And it's not going to be our organic. Those things do come with a cost. Our Purdue brand, and I don't mean to say it, it's a lower brand, but it doesn't have those same attributes. You know, if you're looking for the complete NAE or the complete organic, it costs us more money to raise the birds we, the way we do than the way some of our competitors do. 
So consumers and customers out there need to vote in the marketplace with your wallets if those are the changes that you want to see take place. And I was going to add on the eggs, the difference. Yes, it costs more. I sell my, you know, well, we'll, we'll sell organic eggs for $5, for $5 a dozen. Um, but, but we need to be more aware that there's a, there's a choice and there's, there's disadvantages and advantages to both. So, you know, the, the organic eggs or the pastured, the pastured eggs specifically, my eggs are pastured eggs, and they comply with all the USDA requirements for pasture, which is they're on pasture 100% of the time. They have high levels of the good cholesterol and very low levels of the bad cholesterol, unlike a CAFO egg. So an egg is not an egg is not an egg. So yes, you're going to pay probably twice as much for that pastured egg, but you're going to get an egg that has health benefits for you rather than, than, than you know, you have to worry because you're watching I think it's cholesterol. important to say here that when you talk about buying eggs, anything like this, if it is a mass-produced egg, it's going to be cheaper because, as my uncles used to say, how do we do it? Volume. That's how we make our money. Mm-hmm. And, and it's volume and it's subsidies that don't really right. give you the real costs of the food. All of us know that, that we're buying, right? So that, that's a piece of the puzzle as well. So, ma'am. Well, hitting on that subject about um, tomatoes in the late 70s and mid-80s, they genetically altered tomatoes so that you had more of a yield more of a product when it got to you. What is, how does that affect? How does that affect? I mean, how, how, like taste-wise, it doesn't have as much taste as yeah. organic tomatoes? Yeah, it depends on what you're, you're breeding your tomatoes for. Cleo Braver, certified organic farmer. I mean, so I grow strictly heirloom tomatoes, and I select them because it's Spears Tennessee Green from the Spears family in Tennessee, and it's a green tomato. Um, I buy the Peace Fine cherry tomatoes because they're really high in amino acids. It has a very calming effect on the body, which would make a great snack, afternoon snack and for hospital well, patients. So, yeah, if you're, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're engineering, if you're engineering for yields, if you're engineering for transportability, for thick skin, you know, every time you engineer for something, you're moving away from something. And typically it's taste and nutrition. And last time I checked, those are the two reasons we're eating. And that's why we're here. But, I mean, like we can't get a case of tomatoes at our facility for 50 bucks and have to throw away half of them because that destroys, you know, your, your cost structure that you have to deal with for the patients. But you're not providing them also with the appropriate, you know, food item as well. I so mean, what Amanda's saying, I think, is coming to the heart of the issue. If we established a little bit ago that 2 to 3% of our vegetables are grown in America, but the rest are grown elsewhere, and they're grown whether they're organic or whether they're grown conventionally, they're grown in mass quantities to be sold at a lesser price so people can buy them. I mean, that's the nature of the game at the moment. So where you buy your tomatoes, where you buy your carrots, where you buy your cucumbers is going to be from something like that. So the question is, should that, can that change... Is it possible to change that? Yeah. And what does it mean to change that? And, and should we change it? What is the marketplace telling us, or what should we be telling the marketplace? And Karen, I'm going to let you get, please. You're a purchaser. Yeah. Right? I can't afford it. Can you, can you afford it? I can't afford it. Karen Jenkins, administrator at Genesis Hammonds Lane Center. I can't afford to buy organic produce. I can't access organic produce. And if I could, in a large scale, I probably couldn't afford it. I can't afford to pay $5 a dozen for eggs when I'm serving 150 people eggs every morning. Well, no, that's a retail price. I mean, obviously, a wholesale price is going to be a lot lower. Well, it's much, but yeah. lower, but it's also, it's, also, it's also relative. It's lower. If I'm, if, let's, for argument's sake, 
which you don't do, Charles. <laughs> let's, say, let's, let's, let's say Charles was raising eggs the way you raise chickens. So, but if Charles was raising egg-laying hens the way you raise broilers, your eggs would be a lot less expensive than anything you buy from a free-range farm that's either organic or, 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 or free-range, right? Pastured chickens. So the question, and, and when you go to vegetables, if you are growing vegetables that are grown here in America, how, how do they get to the place where you can grow enough here so your institutions can buy them and make them affordable? That's the question. You can't go out and buy an expensive toma- bunch of tomatoes, feed your, 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 your patients, whoever you're taking care of, salads because you can't afford to buy the tomatoes. How does that change and should it change is the question we're wrestling with up here. That's the question. The way you do it is the, the, the big answer is know your farmer. Louise Mitchell, Maryland Hospitals for Healthy Environment, Sustainable Foods Program Manager. And the more you have that opportunity to find tomatoes, and we'll use this example of tomatoes, the more you have the opportunity to find tomatoes that taste great and have a higher nutrition level, the more you can take those steps to start to purchase them. Let me ask a question, push that a little further, because people who want us to switch our system say what you're saying a lot, Louise. Mm -hmm. So the question is, the other side of it, though, is if you want more than 3% of your vegetables to be grown in the United States of America to be bought by institutions, if that's possible, Charles is nodding at no, well, Charles will in a minute, but if, if you want that to happen in America for your institutions, be they nursing homes, hospitals, whatever institution you're representing, how do you get there? Does that mean the farm bill has to change so the subsidies subsidize vegetable farmers, not as niche little farmers, but as farmers that are growing plots of land like they used to in America to sell? Can that happen? Is it possible to happen? I mean, th- those are the questions I think that we have to wrestle with. They're not just who you buy from. It has to do with how the system is set up so you can buy from them, right? Everybody heard of the, food, the farm bill? Okay. We're talking about all these subsidies. Charles Wright, conventional farmer. Do we know what the farm bill is composed of? Everybody here? I'll give you a little update. 80% of it is for food stamps and nutrition. That's $756 billion. 9.4% is for crop insurance. If you get crop insurance as a farmer, it's subsidized. That's nine b. Six percent is for conservation. That's for land that's set aside, conservation practices. That's fifty-six billion. Five percent is for commodity programs. That would be the grain, corn, soybeans, a wheat program. That's four to four billion. But when you look at the pie chart, it's never thrown out that way. Mm-hmm. It's the farmers are getting all this money, and eighty percent of it is going. For food assistance now. If you took all whatever we get from we're mainly vegetable, I don't want any subsidies for the vegetables. There's not a shortage of vegetables in this country. There's a shortage of vegetables grown in America though. If you go by today and go buy a tomato, when they're in season, they're here. That's the thing. In America, I think part of what we've lost is the seasons. Because I deal with it every day. We've got a retail produce market. They come in, we start picking strawberries usually at 20th April, and we get done sometime late June. They come in August. Are the strawberries ready? All the time. Even now, are you, you know, we might, we're, we're done watermelons and we're done cantaloupes, but the consumer doesn't have, the average consumer, the concept of seasons because you can go, you can go to Walmart and you can go get strawberries, and you can go get them in January, and you can go to Walmart 
and get anything you want pretty much 365 days a year. So that concept of seasons is kind of left. But you can, in your industry, I would think there'd be a, a, a greater chance of capturing the local market, whether it's organic or conventional, I don't care. Because you could gain on your end, usually when the season's in, in going in, in your area, it doesn't matter what crop it is, it's at a peak production. All of a sudden, everything comes on. And that's when you're gonna capture you normally a lower price because everybody's coming on and you're ramping up all this volume. And if you can get hooked up with some local growers, I think buying local would be a benefit not only to your bottom line, but your patrons. I mean, the people that are in your in the hospitals or the nursing homes because they're going to get local food. Just put on a truck and boom, it comes. We buy produce for the market. It drives me crazy that I buy risky and potatoes. We got them out of terminal market and they come from California. It's insane. It costs $18 a box to get them from California to here. That's a third the cost of the potato. I, I don't want to lose track of what we're talking about here. So losing track of what we're talking about here, I think, is at the heart of the issue of what the future is and how you get to the future. And keep people farming on the land and keep people eating food that's grown here. And is it possible? That's, that's the trick. We've been doing this series now for almost three years. For me, the bottom line is, can it work? And how do we do it? I hope you enjoyed that conversation about conventional and industrial farming versus organic and other non-industrial agriculture in the context of institutional buying from the Maryland, Delaware, and D.C. chapter of the Association of Nutrition and Food Service Professionals, their annual workshop by the sea, which took place earlier this month. To hear the full audio from that discussion, please visit us at soundbitesradio.org. For feedback on what you just heard, please email us at talk at steinershow.org. We also wanted to give a shout-out to our friends at Thread Coffee, Red Emma's roasting arm, and provider of coffee for WEAA. They'll be partnering with the Charles Theater to bring you a film screening of Connected by Coffee, followed by a discussion and coffee and chocolate tasting in celebration of Fair Trade Month. It's this Saturday, October 25th at 11 a.m. at the Charles Theater. For more information, visit redms.org forward slash thread. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Marvel Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our intern is Sianna Greaves. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and hear our additional interviews, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcast on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. SDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.